All right. Well, I love being here and I hate being here. I love being here because um, I think this is one of the most beautiful things that happens in our church. I love how uh, women are digging together, taking God's word seriously, studying God's word and knowing God's word. And it's a real privilege to be able to be a part of it. I hate being here because uh, one of the things I love most about what's happening in the women in our church is just this, uh, this hunger for the word of God that's raising up women who are strong teachers of God's word. And there's a lot of women in this church and in this room who, are, uh, who, are, who would actually do a better job than what I'm going to do right now, which is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, but unfortunately, with some sicknesses and things like that, uh, they had to call in a ringer at the end. Um, so you're stuck with me. And I don't mean that in mere flattery. I, I really know the quality of teaching that goes on in this room. And, uh, and, I, and I feel the weight of that coming in, trying to handle God's word well before you. But also, I'm super thankful for the quality of, of, um, and commitment to the word of God amongst the women in our church. So that's a great thing. So you're stuck with me today. I'll do my best. It won't be as good as what you would have gotten if, uh, if one of the women, one other women were teaching, but hopefully it will get us into the word and help us to know it well, and God will use it as he can use it no matter who's teaching. Um, I, uh, I, Eva was not sure who was going to do the scripture reading, so I will go ahead and do the scripture reading and read the passage for us. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Your particular group did. Oh, I thought you meant like the room did. So everyone else did the right thing, and I'm just covering for your group. Great. Great. Well, I will read it anyways, because I said I would, and I like doing that. Uh, so this is Ephesians 2.11 to 3.6. Hopefully I have the right passage. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, And peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also being built together into a dwelling sorry in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit 
For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, um, everyone in this room to varying varying levels has spent time in this word already. Maybe in the last week, marinating in it. Maybe even just the last 10 or 15 minutes, discussing it and looking at it. But we want your word to reign in our hearts. We want its truths to be brought to bear. So help us, God, as we study this together. Give us the help of your spirit. May we hear what you want us to hear and grow in the ways you want us to grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who are uh, listening on the podcast, I will be moving away from the microphone at times. So you have to bear with me that I'll sometimes be loud and sometimes be soft. But you in the room are lucky because my voice will fair, remain fairly consistent for you guys. Um, I actually want to start by just getting a sense for the flow of this passage, the, the overall logic of the passage. So the first thing I want you to do to help me with that is I want you to scan through the whole passage and just write down or mark every time there's a command, a clear command an imperative. So take a little bit of time around your tables. 2, 11 to 3, 6. Highlight every command. Do that on your own and then I'll ask for what you found in just a moment. All right, did, what commands did you find? Remember. Remember. Where is it? Verses 11 and 12. Were there any other commands in the entire passage? No. Just the command to remember. All right. Karen taught last week, 2, 1 to 11. Scan through that. Tell me the commands in 2 or 1 to 10. 
Look at 2, 1 to 10. Look for the commands there. Commands there? Audrey's looking at me saying, nope, there's not. So, in the entire chapter 2, the only command is remember. And it's right at the hinge, right? The therefore remember. It's the only command. Spilling into chapter 3, verse 6. Only one command, remember. I'll even let you skip a little ahead. Look at 7 through 13. Any commands in 7 through 13? Or 3, 7 to 13. 3, 7 to 13. Is there a command there? There might be one. There is one. Don't lose heart. Verse 13. It might not be, okay, it might not be officially a command, but it's pretty clear that that's what's going on there, right? I'm asking you not to lose heart. Sometimes my kids are like, you just asked me, you didn't tell me to. It's a command. <laughs> probably in its proper grammatical sense, it's not. So you guys win. But I want you to see that because I think all of what's going on in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is leading up to that command in verse 13. Don't lose heart. I ask you not to lose heart. Because, as we noticed... In your, if you did the study, it pointed out for this reason in three one. For this reason, I Paul, and then he goes off on like he gets goes on this long tangent and doesn't pick it up again until verse fourteen. For this reason, I, and he's he's about to say why he bow, how he prays before God for the Ephesians. So in 14, 15, 16 of chapter 3, he's telling them how he prays for them. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You see, he's like, because of what God's done, chapter 2, I pray a certain way that you'd be strengthened. And that's why in his long tangent, he ends in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart. He wants them to be strengthened. 
Verse 20, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to power at work within us. So chapter two is all about the power at work within us. Wanting us to grasp that. That's what he's praying for the Ephesians. That they would grasp God's power at work within us. So, why might they be tempted to lose heart? Why might they be tempted to lose sight of God's power at work within them? Anybody? There's a clue in 3.13. Because because the great apostle Paul is suffering. Is that how the gospel is supposed to work? How is he suffering? He's in prison, prison, 3.1. That's what causes the whole tangent, right? I'm praying for you. I am a prisoner. Oh, oh, I got to tell you about why I'm a prisoner. So don't lose heart for my suffering. So, we in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul comes to us, tells us about the gospel. We believe great is our God, more powerful than the idols of this city. All the magic that runs here. And now our great apostle is imprisoned and he's suffering. That's not how the gospel works. Does this gospel really have power? How, that's right. How are, how are we tempted to be discouraged about the power of the gospel. What are some things that when you look on out on this world, you can say, is the gospel powerful? Is it really able to do what it says it can do? Is it real? Death. Death. Yeah. That's right. Especially, I'd say untimely death. I mean, if that's the right term. But a a death that just seems outside the natural course. What else can cause you to say, does this gospel have power? God's grace is enough. It is. It always is. I know it is. Audrey, for those listening on the podcast, Audrey's just talking about, you know what? You can always trust God's grace. So she's right with Paul, right in the heartbeat of this passage. She wants us to understand his grace is powerful. It is enough. You can hold on to it. Where are the times we're tempted to think it's not? Where we need Audrey's words and God's words ringing in our ears. Yeah, when we're going through tough times, like... Oh, really? Is this what I signed up for? God, I thought you were real. I thought you answered first. I thought you did what I wanted you to do. 
I think sometimes you look out on the world and you're like, it's not, it's not like, this is not going in a good direction. Is God really on the throne? And sometimes we can look even at the church, both globally and even our own church. And certain things, there's, you're treated badly by somebody, somebody lets you down, and you go, wait, is this how the gospel works? So there are all sorts of things, and that might be a good thing when you get to your uh, tables later and kind of discuss, to, to think of just around, in your own heart, what are things that can cause you to lose heart um, related to the gospel. But uh, what I want to do right now is I want to turn to the whiteboard, and, I, and Karen warned me if I write on the whiteboard, I have to say what I'm, what I'm writing down so that the podcasters can know. But I'm going to be uh, I'm going to have the whiteboard over here. I'll talk a little louder, so maybe the mic will pick up, pick it up. But uh, so he wants us he wants us to see again three verse twenty. He wants us to see the power that is at work within us. Three twenty, the power that's at work within us. So I'm going to see how well my wife did teaching you guys. A little, a little grade. What's the last verse in our passage? Twenty one. Twenty-two. Twenty-two. I meant in sorry in chapter two, not three six. I'm just doing chapter two right now. So in two one through ten, what was our original condition? I wrote original condition under two one through ten on the whiteboard. All right, what was our original condition? Dead. 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 What kind of dead? Dead dead. <laughs> How many kinds of dead are there? <laughs> what kind of dead are we? Spiritually, Spiritually dead. dead. Yes. Spiritually dead. <laughs> Spiritually dead. And is that just, he just says it real quick? No, he kind of lingers on just how dead we are. Spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. <laughs> And then, there's a really important word. What's the word that changes everything? But. But. Um, I had a pastor friend who made the mistake of preaching in front of a big church that had a lot of, was more conservative church, and he said, this is the biggest but in all of scripture. <laughs> He got a little tongue lashing for that. But it is a big bite. Um, and now I'm in trouble. <laughs> never think of it the same way. Okay. Um, what, what happened? What, sir, what was the result for us? Let's just start with that. What was the result for us? Made alive. Made alive. Anyone want to elaborate on that a little bit? When you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you, then I used to be, before going overseas, I used to be the biggest chicken walking around with two feet. When I got over there, I was looking at different 
things, and next thing I know, I'm wondering, when I was laying, laying in bed that night, I thought, where did the fear go? Hmm. I, I have not had fear since then. It's gone. And I'm not going to drag it back up. That's right. So the Spirit comes and He transforms us. He prepares you. Yeah. That's a great testimony of exactly what this is talking about. I think in both passages, actually. So we're made alive. We're made alive that leads us to be people who um, walk, in, walk in good works that God's prepared for us, right? So these people who are spiritually dead, slaves to the prince of the power of the air, were made people who actually want to do good and want to help and are doing the things that God's prepared for us to do that are good. It's amazing. And how did it happen? So just so you know, I wrote down original condition, a but, and then a how. Under original condition, spiritually dead, but made alive to walk in good works. And now I'm writing down how, all under 2, 1 through 10. So how did that happen according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10? Through God's mercy by his grace. God's mercy. Which is grace. And then... Um, how, how did he make us alive? It's by his mercy, which is his grace. It's a particular... In Christ. Faith in Christ. Yeah, faith in Christ. So it's because of what Christ did, Christ's act, which, of course, points to his act on the cross, where he took our sin receive the penalty for that so that we could be forgiven and receive that grace. So it's Christ's act. I'm going to just put it on the cross there. So Karen did a good job teaching you guys last week. Good job, wife. <laughs> um, so our board says 2, 1 through 10, original condition, spiritually dead, but made alive, walk in goodness, or walk in good works. How? Um, God's mercy, His grace, through Christ, act on the cross. And we receive that by faith, which is right. All right, let's do the same thing over here. Original condition. 2, 11 through 22. What's our original condition? As Gentiles. Separated. What are we separated from? Christ. Separated from Christ. What else? Aliens the commonwealth. Yeah. No hope without God. Yeah, we're separated from God, from Christ, because we're separated from the commonwealth of Israel. And the covenant of you know that God has with his people. So there was there was this special arrangement God had with Israel in the Old Testament. And Gentiles in that system, were cut off from that. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't convert to become Jews. That happened on occasion. But they would be converting to become Jews, 
And it was not, it was not like those floodgates were opened, right? It was very much focused on Israel. And we could explain that a little bit, but uh, separated from God, Christ, but separated, cut off from the common, what's the word, alienated from Israel. Anything else on that that would be good? Our, our original condition. Separated God, alienated from Israel. There's some other language in there that's pretty strong. Construction language. Having no hope. No hope. <laughs> Is that how construction works at your house? <laughs> no hope. But there's a real focus on, you know, if, if this is talking about the, which one's this one? Vertical. This one's much more focused on what? So, yeah, we're cut off from God, separated from God, but it's, it's leading to, there's a division between Israel and the Gentiles. We're cut off, the Gentiles are cut off, so there's this separation, so there's this dividing wall of hostility, Right? make sense? So for those on the podcast, I have in the second column, 211 through 22, and I have our original condition is separated from God and Christ, alienated from Israel, so no hope, a dividing wall of hostility. And over in 21 through 10, I have an up and down horizontal, uh, vertical line, and here under 211 through 22, I've added a, a horizontal line. Alright, so do we see... This word, but, in our passage. Where is it? Verse 13. Right. This one's verse 3, right? No, 4. And what is it, what's the result for us of, what, of God's action? So, so that we're going to get into the how, which relates to the cross, exactly. But before that, what, what, is, what is the result for us who were separated from each other, cut off from God? Near. Brought near. That's right. Any other phrases there? What happened to that dividing wall? One new man in place of two? Yeah, we're one. One instead of two. No longer aliens. No longer alienated. And those listening at home, I'm just writing these phrases down. Yeah, the dividing wall has been torn down, right? He killed the hostility. Verse 16. <coughs> and now let's look at the word how. How did we do that? How did that come about? How did this transformation come about? And this is where Audrey's already getting, getting us on it. She said on the cross. Mm -hmm. Verse 16, right? 
What? Through the blood of Christ. Through his blood. Now, there's some logic here that I just want to explain. Um, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. There are a few different ways the Bible talks about the law. I want to talk about the two main ways it talks about the law. Generally, when you're reading the Bible and you come to the word law, you want to know which of these two ways it's being used. So one way the word law is used refers to the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, which are called the law. But there's not a lot of commandments given, say, in Genesis. And... Like when you go to Deuteronomy, it does have a lot of commandments, but it has a lot of explanation and preaching in it. There are stories in Exodus and Numbers. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a, these five books together, there's a teaching to them. There's, there's, a, there's an emphasis they're bringing. So sometimes law is referring to the teaching of the law. But sometimes the word law refers to the system of the law. So within the books of Moses, there was a system set up, starting in Exodus, and then it gets developed in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's a system set up. And it's a system whereby sinful Israelites could dwell with the holy God. And the system involves an elaborate sacrificial system as well as an elaborate tabernacle and then temple system and an elaborate priestly system. In some ways, God intentionally designed this to be a sort of works righteousness. I do enough. I follow this system and I can please God. Now, when I say intentionally designed it that way, in the system, it kind of works like that. But if you read Moses and all of what he's saying, he makes clear, look, you're going to be dependent on my grace no matter what. If you're putting your confidence in just keeping, the, keeping it exactly right, doing it exactly right, you're going to be lost. So especially in Deuteronomy, that comes through really clearly. But even when he's setting up the sacrificial system, it's, it's clear, like, you know, this is like, um, the author of Hebrews really expounds on this beautifully, but he's like, it, it was just a shadow. It was clear by how it's built up that it was a shadow pointing to something greater. So the sacrifices were actually pointing forward to something greater. The, priest, the priestly system was pointing forward to something greater. Tabernacle temple system is pointing forward to something greater, which is all fulfilled in Christ. So you have the system of the law versus the teaching of the law. And when Christ comes, he fulfills the, the, the teaching of the law. Like it all comes together, makes sense 
but then he abolishes the system of the law because it was all shadows pointing to him. One key aspect of this system of the law was a sharp and important distinction between ethnic Israel and any Gentiles. So much of the dietary laws that you read in the Old Testament, and even some of like the fabric laws or weird ones about boiling goats in their mother's milk and things like that, when you read the law, it says, this will be a distinction. This will distinguish you from the other nations. Now, some people say that's because these things were associated with paganism and wrong worship, which could be the case. But some of it was just to say, look, you're going to be different. Circumcision did that as well. It was a mark that said, I belong to something different. And so when Christ abolishes that system of the law, one of the things that's amazing that happens is all these shadows, the things, the teachings of the law we're pointing to, become accessible to anyone who comes to Christ by faith. And the Gentiles start to pour in. And now, before God, you have Jew and Gentile together as one man. It's this beautiful thing that Christ fulfills. In our passage later on in 3... Um, 3.3, it uses the term mystery. It occurs again in 3.6. Mystery, to relate to, to describe this. This is one of Paul's favorite ways of talking about how the gospel is revealed in the Old Testament. This is, a, this is not a perfect um, translation of the word, but, but to get the vibe of it, think of it like a riddle. The riddle. So if I say to you, the man who made it doesn't want it. The man who bought it doesn't need it. The man who needs it doesn't know it. Does anybody know what the answer to that riddle is? My wife does. You know? What is it? A casket. That's right. A casket. The way a riddle works is there's very deliberately laid out clues that don't make a lot of sense, but you know they make sense. The way it's told, you can tell they make sense, but it doesn't make sense until you get the answer. A, a casket. The one who made it doesn't want it. The man who bought it doesn't need it. The one who needs it doesn't know it. It's a casket. And it's like, oh, now I get it. And Paul's saying, that's how the Old Testament works. And one aspect of that mystery is you, you hear God's heartbeat for the nations. Genesis doesn't start with Israel. It starts with Adam. It starts with a curse on the whole world and a promise for the whole world to be restored to blessing. And then when eventually Abraham does come along, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. And then you hear that heartbeat throughout the scriptures of God's heart for everybody. But at the same time, you got this ethnic nation, Israel. That's his chosen people. How does that work? And they have all these laws that keep them separated from the pagan nations. How's that work? And then Jesus comes in. You're like, oh, it all makes sense. He brings all that together. 
So he abolishes these ordinances like don't eat this. You must be separated from the pagans like or the, the Gentiles like this. But in so doing, he fulfills it and makes it complete. The very intent of the teachings of the law. Does that make sense? All right. So, um, so that, that helps us then understand a little bit the logic of what's going on in our passage. Um, you have two things about what God's done and where he's leading us that are all pointing forward. He wants us to be encouraged and strengthened by that. So when you look at 2, 11 through 22, I think a lot of times the teaching goes towards, okay, we need to be more um, united. We need to be uh, including everybody. And, and, and that's true, just like in 2, 1 through 10, like we need to repent and we need to believe. But, but it's not, these, there's not, these aren't commands. These are things to remember what God's done. So you look in a room like this or you go on a Sunday morning and look at, look at our church. We're imperfect. We're not, we're not in heaven yet. We sin against each other. We don't have perfect unity. But even the fragile unity we have, it's jaw-dropping. Like, how is this room united? It's because of Christ. If Christ can bring these people together, if he can bring the Gentiles into the commonwealth of Israel, if he can tear down the dividing wall of hostility, his gospel's real. And so be strengthened by that. So as you go to your groups, there's a handful of questions to discuss that were distributed ahead of time. But you can be thinking about, you know, how are we prone to be discouraged about the gospel? And how has the reality of what God's done in us in 2.11 through 22, how is that an encouragement to you? You can talk about just stories of how, how people who really shouldn't be, you know, together are together. So I think I've gone a little over on my time. Sorry about that. I have like autopilot. I only know how to teach one amount of time. <laughs> Told you the women would do a better job. But uh, I'll leave it to you guys around your tables to take it from here. Thanks for letting me be here. <laughs>